0: Good morning. This is Donna Tyson with Rivers of Faith on Zeus Radio Network for Hear Women Talk. And we are so glad you joined us this Tuesday morning. It is always a delight to have you tune in, and every week we try to share a new story of encouragement and hope for those listening. Today I am absolutely delighted to have as my special guest, Miss Debbie Turner, a successful businesswoman, community leader, Bible teacher author and professional speaker good morning Debbie good morning Donna how are you today just great so excited that this day has come Debbie has a powerful story to share with us today one that is rather difficult to talk about actually of how she had spent years building up her life as a professional woman Um, was was enjoying life and had it all in the world's eyes. And in one moment, her life crumbled around her as her 21-year-old son took his life. And in that moment, Deb says that her life ended as well. Deb, I don't want to go into more details right now, what I'd like you to do is to give me a summary of your life story, and then we'll go back and talk about the individual chapters and some things that might help the listening audience. So could you give me a brief overview of your story?
1: Sure, I'd be glad to. Um, Probably the best place to start would just kind of lay the foundation of having grown up in a, a Christian home and having church um, and involvement with the church through children's programs and then youth programs, very much an important part of my life um, and the life that I enjoyed with my family. Um, it had a tremendous impact on me, and I, I recall accepting Jesus Christ as my Savior when I was just a, a young teenager. I, I felt very sincere in my commitment and. Um, My Christian journey, I think, got off to a great start until I hit those awkward teenage years. And like many other teenagers, I became influenced more by my peers than my family. I I began to accept the values that the world offered to me as, as the driving motivation behind my choices rather than the values that I had been taught by my family. And that created some significant changes in my heart. I began to um, place a high value on worldly success and material possessions, and that carried forward with me into adulthood. It really became the driving force behind everything I did. And as a young adult, uh, became a small business owner, was quickly very successful, and achieved everything that I thought my heart desired. So by the time I was 40 years old, kind of leapfogging ahead, I had two um, young sons who were teenagers and um, two stepkids who were a little bit older, happily married, had a thriving business, didn't lack for any material possessions that I wanted at all. I served as the leader on numerous boards and had just recently been asked to serve as the president of our Chamber of Commerce. I'd been recognized as Small Business Person of the Year, so that, that um, I guess, but, respect my peers that I had hungered for for so long that had... Um, also motivated me through all those years. (laughs) I finally had all that, you know, and it looked like life was really going to be perfect. And you you know, when that
0: happens to us, when that happens to us, because our lives parallel so much, we Uh have talked about this, you really start to believe that you are in control of your destiny, that that you can handle anything.
1: And we love to be in control, don't we? Oh yeah we, we feel that we can influence <laughs> our our future and what's going to happen to us and that gives us a sense of security but um i quickly found out that those walls of security that i had spent so many decades building they could evaporate in a single moment i i didn't mention that during all these years while i'm racking up achievements there was the reason i kept striving and reaching for more is that i was never satisfied You know, I could never seem to get to that place where I felt that I had arrived, and happiness was within my grasp. It it was elusive. I kept reaching for it, and I'd have it for about a minute, and and then I would feel empty again and try to reach for something else. Mm -hmm. And I didn't recognize at the time, not until December 2003, that... um, what I had been longing for was what I had left behind so long ago in, in favor of reaching for what the world told me I needed. It was the Savior, the God who
0: created me. Absolutely. Now, Deb, you mentioned December 2003. That is when Stephen took his life. Can you yes. tell me about that day?
1: I can. Um, every moment of that night is deeply engraved in my heart. My youngest son, Michael, and I had just returned from a trip to Texas, and when we arrived home, we were really tired, and so we ended up going to bed early that night. Um, My telephone rang shortly after 11, and it was Stephen and Michael's dad. And he told me that he was leaving his home to go to Stephen's apartment that's Stephen had threatened to take his own wife to his girlfriend over the telephone and that she had called the police, and so they were heading over there. Well, I, I quickly got out of bed, I, I woke my husband, and we dressed and and drove over to Stephen's, and on the way over there, I, I just had the most sickening feeling inside that it was something terrible was about to happen, and When we arrived, the police had barricaded the entrance to the apartment complex and would not let us in. I explained that I was Stephen's mom, and they directed us to wait across the street in a parking lot, and they left a, a sheriff's deputy with us, and also there was an emergency medical vehicle sitting there. And so for close to three hours that night, we were waiting waiting for something to happen and they were knocking on steven's door they had even managed to open the door and toss in a phone asking him to please pick it up and talk to them because they knew that he had a gun so they were Mm -hmm. afraid to just go in and there was no reply during all that time and so we were waiting talking to the police talking to steven's ex-girlfriend trying to find out what had happened between them to precipitate this. And it was a little after two in the morning when I saw a a police car come racing across the street and a deputy got out of the car and walked over to us and I still remember exactly what he said. Um, he said I'm sorry he didn't make it. Ugh. And his With those words, my life ended because everything that I had trusted, everything that I truly believed and have worked so hard for because I really thought that those things were the basis of my security, that, you know, we would live happily ever after just like the fairy tale. Mm -hmm. And so everything that I believed in and the child that I dearly loved were ripped away from me in a second, and there was not one single thing I could do about it. I've, I've never felt so helpless in my life.
0: Or so I think helpless. that is all of our worst fears, is he- hearing that our child has taken his life. Uh, I just, I, my heart hurts when I listen to you share that story, and I can't imagine standing there For three to three and a half hours, knowing that he was threatening to do that inside and not being able to get to him to talk to him, I kept thinking if
1: they would just let me go over
0: there, I could
1: talk to him. I'm his mom; he would listen to me, but they wouldn't. They wouldn't let you near the door anyway. No.
0: And you found out after the fact that you all were waiting that entire time, and he had already taken his life, correct?
1: Right. He had obviously, as soon as he hung up from talking to his girlfriend, he did it immediately. And so he was gone before we ever arrived.
0: And he called the girlfriend um, that they had broken up to tell her that he was going to take his life, but not you all, right? Right. Well, they were um, actually
1: arguing on okay. the telephone. Um, she had just left the day before, and he told her he was going to do that. And then the phone went dead.
0: And had she, he so ever been, had he ever talked about suicide to you? He
1: did. As a matter of fact, over Stephen's problems actually began seven years earlier when he first began experimenting with marijuana and. At the time, he was an honor student, had never been the slightest bit of trouble. I mean, he was a wonderful kid, an intelligent, articulate, straight-A student, just brilliant, with um, just the warmest personality. And that suddenly began to change when he was um, entering his freshman year of high school.
0: You said and he was 14?
1: Yes, and um, I I tried to reach out to him because we had always been so close. I couldn't imagine what was happening, and he refused to talk about it. And so I just kind of chopped it up to, well, this is, you know, we all go through that awkward time as a teenager when we're trying to sort out who we are and what's going to be meaningful to us, and he's just struggling with that a little. He'll grow out of it, Mm -hmm. and it just continued to worsen over the years.
0: Now, you talk about that he got really angry, Debbie. It seemed like you said it was just an about-face, and he was angry at the world all the time, and you couldn't fix it.
1: Right, and there was nothing that had happened that I could really put my finger on. Um, I mean, one of the things that precipitated it naturally was right about that time, in fact, just a few years earlier, his father and I divorced, Mm -hmm. and... Steven was very close to both of us, but I thought because we were working through it in a friendly manner, we were both heavily involved with the children, even though, you know, in my mind, I was like, well, we're doing a really good job at this. We're living in separate homes, but we both love our kids. We're both there for them, and so really, it should be okay and Mm -hmm. i think that's just a a lie that we tell ourselves to make ourselves feel better about what can be very selfish choices you know that it won't hurt our children we'll make it right for them and to be honest with you stephen was still struggling with that the day he died and he talked about it yeah he would bring it up regularly but throughout those years he had mentioned suicide But, again, you know, I never took that seriously because he had so many reasons to be happy. You know,
0: I was making sure of that, right? Exactly. Well, Deb, we're going to take... It was a shock. We're going to take just a second and take a break here. We're going to come back and go back again to Dustin's childhood, to the impact the divorce had on him and his um, experimentation with drugs as soon as this break is over. So you all stay tuned. We'll be right back with Rivers of Faith. Welcome back. This is Donna Tyson with Rivers of Faith on Zeus Radio Network for Hear Women Talk. The beautiful music that you've heard opening the show and it breaks is a tribute to his brother, Michael, Stephen's brother, wrote this music. It is called Portrait of a Broken Mind. And Michael, I want to thank you for giving us permission to play this today on this show. It's just beautiful, and it shows the different stages of life and the frustration and the anger and the peace that Stephen went through at different times in his life. Deb, you want to tell us a little bit more about that music? Sure. Um, Michael
1: has always turn to music, I think, both as an outlet for his emotions and also as as possibly an escape from some of the fears that he had for his brother. Michael and Stephen were born 21 months apart, but they were as close as any twins, even though they're they're very, very different people and, and definitely unique in their own right. They were really close growing up. and. When Michael was a young teenager, he began playing the piano on his own. We had one in our home for my husband and my stepson, and the first song that he learned to play was for Elise. So he, he jumped oh, right into classical beautiful. music. None of the Mary had a little lamb. So. <laughs> but um, over his teenage years, he would um, get on the keyboard whenever something was troubling him. or, And I, I think that he just poured his soul into what he was composing and playing, and whenever I listen to his music, it, it, there's so much heart in it. So when he composed this piece last year as a, a tribute to Stephen, and it's been performed publicly several times now, it's actually won a, a Southeastern Composition Contest. It, it's just been incredible for me to sit in the audience and hear, you know, those live musicians playing that piece and knowing. What's behind it, the the heart that's within
0: it. It's just beautiful. Again, here on Rivers of Faith today, we're talking with Debbie Turner, a successful businesswoman whose life changed dramatically in December 2003 when her 21-year-old son, Stephen, took his life through suicide. Deb, I apologize right before break. I uh, called Stephen Dustin, and that is my attention deficit in full swing because Dustin Gilder, our producer, was texting me that we had two minutes till break and i was typing dustin and saying it at the same oh, no time problem. so i apologize i do know that it's stephen and i will try hard to honor him with the correct name the rest of this show yes. right before break we were talking about how um just you had gone through a divorce that it was very very hard on him he was 12 years old when you went through the divorce right in that ballpark and that then, two years later, um, his personality just changed as he entered high school and then you got a call from the school letting you know that he had been caught with pot Tell us about that
1: that 's right. It was the day after I had opened my own business, so you can imagine the stress of that. I had just signed <laughs> a, a lease committing to pay for this space for a year with no income at that point, and just hoping that things were going to work out and Um, I was working at my desk that morning, and my husband actually walked into my office. Um, I had remarried, as had Stephen's dad, and um, he walked to my office, and I knew the minute I saw his face, something was terribly wrong, and he asked me to step outside with him and get in the car. And I had no clue at that point why, but I I walked outside, got into the car, and as we began to pull out of the parking lot, he said, I have to tell you, Stephen was just arrested at school this morning, and we're on our way to the sheriff's department. And I, I could not believe it because literally this was the opposite of what i would expect from him again he was a great kid you know yes he had begun to change recently he was wearing dark clothes he had become moody was withdrawing to his room and, and separating himself from the family Mm -hmm. far more than we were accustomed to. And all of those things concerned me. I had tried to talk to him about it, but I couldn't get him to open up. And now this. And nothing I I had no idea how to react to this um, other than to just talk to his counselors, talk to the principal, talk to the sheriff's department, anyone I could think of that could offer me advice to find out what to do and the consensus seemed to be get him in a counseling program and Mm -hmm. um, participate with him and so I did. I I, um, signed up with a counselor, I went with him, I attended those sessions and throughout the process I remember her saying several times to me Yes, Debbie, this is a serious thing. We need to work through this. But this is a normal part of growing up. He's just pressing against the boundaries, and things are going to be okay. But deep in my heart, I knew something far more serious was wrong, that it wasn't just that.
0: And I want to talk about that for a moment. Last week, we talked with Lisa Kratz-Thomas about how she entered into drugs and, and alcohol and substance abuse at 13 years old. And you're saying at 14 that Stephen entered in. So many times in our culture, we are told they're going to experiment. Pot is normal. Drinking is normal. If they come home drunk. Or, but a mother's heart knows that they're looking for an escape. Right and, and I you, you went to counseling to the heart of the problem. <laughs> mhm. And when they won't open up, it's very very hard. So you went to counseling, you all went into treatment, but Steven continued in his drug use and it escalated. And right. uh, talk to me, he went to college and at the time he was in college, you found out that he was using much much harder drugs.
1: I did, his first year of college, because if you've ever dealt with an addict, um, and I know many of your listeners today know people who are because it's so prevalent in our society now, then you know that there are ups and downs and that life becomes a roller coaster when you love someone who's addicted to drugs. Mm-hmm. And Stephen's first year of college was wonderful. Again, he's making wonderful grades. He's in his own apartment. He's being responsible. And, you know, I, I breathed a sigh of relief, but, you know, okay, he's matured now. We are past this, and it's behind us. But starting his second year of school, I began having difficulty getting in touch with him. I would call his cell phone, and either the messages were full, so I couldn't leave a message, or he would not answer. It would just Mm -hmm. ring and ring. There were times that I would reach him, and we'd make an appointment for me to drive to his home in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and plan to have dinner together, and I would arrive, and he wouldn't come to the door. It was completely silent in his apartment, although his car was in the parking lot. And
0: And he didn't want you to see him in that condition and that is one of the warning signs parents as you're as you're listening to this we want to believe that they're okay and we look for the signs that that everything is okay and and the drug use is over but when they start pulling away and they don't answer their phones and they don't want you to see them because we can see it in their eyes as mothers
1: right. they're trying um, to hide it Well, he called me one day in April of 2003. I was working at my desk, and my phone rang. I picked it up, and I heard his voice on the other end say, Mom, I need help. And it was the first time in seven years he had even admitted that he had a problem that was beyond his ability to control and so I talked to his dad, both of us made arrangements to bring him back to our home in Greenwood. We set him up in his own apartment to keep him close by, but um, I'll be honest with you, we couldn't. neither one of us could bring him into our homes because he had burned so many bridges with other family members. Absolutely. And it just seemed better to keep him close um, where we could keep an eye on him, but we couldn't bring him home.
0: And you say that he talked uh, about um, that he hated the drug. He would weep yes. and say that he hated the drug, but that it had a control on his soul. Exactly. And, and what was his drug of choice at that time?
1: It was methamphetamine. Wow. And when we went to Spartanburg to pick Stephen up, I was astonished at his appearance. He was 5'8", and he weighed probably 110 112 pounds he looked horrible absolutely horrible
0: and they get the dark circles under their eyes exactly
1: and And his he was so thin so very thin but from not eating Mm -hmm. and so we brought
0: him back to green oh i'm sorry go ahead No, you talk about the bridges that he had burned when drugs are involved it takes a lot of money and they end up stealing and lying and giving away possessions and selling things at the pawn shop anything Mm -hmm. to get hold of the money to be able to support the habit and with every time they do that their self-esteem goes down right and someone
1: who's involved with a hard drug, the, as it's called, like methamphetamine or, or cocaine or, or any of those, heroin, those types of things. The drug is so controlling. It alters their personality. And I remember telling him once, Stephen, I, I'm scared of you.
0: Not, mm-hmm. And he,
1: he looked so hurt when I said that. He said, I would never hurt you. And I said, you wouldn't, but I don't know about that drug.
0: Oh, and, Debbie. My heart breaks as I listen to you. I again we have talked in the past. I have a son who has gone through this and this is mm-hmm. such a hard show for me because I have contacted you in the middle of the night in my own pain. Mm-hmm. Afraid that I was going to experience the very same thing that our lives were so parallel and and it to know that your son is in a place where he is aware that the drug is controlling him, but he can't pull himself out, and you can't help, and the counselors can't help. Mm -hmm. At that time, were you praying to God? Were you dealing, were you trying to make a deal with God? Or where was your faith at this moment?
1: You know what, It, it was pretty much non-existent because I had convinced myself over those years since I was a young teenager that um I could rely upon myself and I really didn't need anyone else, much less someone that I had begun to think of as a mythical type creator that, you know, was he there, wasn't he there? I I, I don't know. He was a, a possible God and A possible God didn't require anything of me, so it was safe to keep them just a possibility. Exactly. There there were tough times when I would. you know, God, if, if you're there, please help me with this. And if you do, I promise, I promise I'll do this for you, you know. <laughs> and, but I, I don't know if I was really bargaining with him at that time. I, I just felt like my love for this child and my will, because I'm a strong-willed person, would be enough to save him. Uh. No one could have wanted it more passionately.
0: Well, we're going to take a short break, Debbie. We're going to come back and talk about the power of love and realizing that love isn't enough when your child is in that darkness. You all stay tuned. We'll be right back with Debbie Turner and Rivers of Faith. Welcome back to the Rivers of Faith. This is Donna Tyson on Zeus Radio Network for Hear Women Talk. Today we're talking with Debbie Turner with her heartbreaking story of the loss of her son Stephen in December of 2003. He took his life after just battling uh, with drugs um, and self-esteem and trying to find out who he was in life. The music that we've heard is so beautiful and has been written by his brother, Michael, as a tribute to Stephen. It's called Portrait of a Broken Mind, and we're going to continue to play that music at every break. And again, want to thank Michael for allowing us to share this on the radio. Our phone lines are opened here on Rivers of Faith at 646. Six six five two two zero seven one. Our chat line is open. I see many of you are on there. If you have a question that you'd like to ask um, Debbie, please give us a call or give it—you know—chat it on the line, and I'll make sure that I ask it. Debbie, we were talking about. The fact that in his second year of college, Stephen called you and said he needed help, and you went and picked him up in April, brought him home, set him up in an apartment, thought that things were straightening out, that you all were working on it together, and then in November... Um, just a few short months after bringing him back, he took his own life with a gun. You told us about the night of the suicide, but I I want to go to the next day. I want to go to you now being in the position that your child has taken his life. You couldn't fix it, and now you have to go on with your own life. Debbie, you have two books out. Um, that are just fabulous and we're gonna talk about those in the next break but the first one was trees wear glasses don't they and it's a testimony of your story and in that book you talk about walking across the parking lot at work and listening to the tap of your shoes hit the pavement and that that was the sound that you had to focus on to maintain sanity and keep breathing Talk to me about that pain. The pain
1: was overwhelming. It obliterated everything else in my life. When the alarm would ring in the morning and I opened my eyes, literally my first thought was of a deep cloud enveloping me and this heavy, heavy blanket that just blotted out the light, blotted out any hope. And because I had so many people relying upon me, because I am a business owner, I had my staff, I had the the folks who work for me, for my clients, I had to get out of bed and keep going. I had my family, other people who loved me, my children, my husband, my mom, and my dad, and grandparents, people that I had to be there for, and I didn't want to be. Anymore. Life was too painful. But every day I would get up. I'm sorry?
0: No, go ahead.
1: And go through the motions of living, doing only what I had to do just to keep things going. When I would get home from work, I would sit on the sofa and just pretty much stare blankly. You know, if the TV was on, I couldn't focus on anything. I couldn't read. I couldn't really do anything other than simply experience the pain and when I went to bed at night I would ask myself how long do I have to keep doing this because eternity just seemed to stretch before me and it looked absolutely miserable
0: was there anything that your friends and family did or could have done to have helped you with the pain in those immediate days after that suicide
1: I know that when you care deeply for someone that you see suffering a loss like this you you want to reach out you you feel such a compulsion to try and fix it and do something to help and i'll be completely honest with you a pain that deep no living human being can touch it for you because it's so deep within you the only The only one who could help me was the Lord, and I didn't know enough about Him to even turn. I mean, I knew plenty about Him, but I didn't know that, I didn't believe that He loved me. I didn't believe that He would care enough to help me or, you know, do anything to intervene in my situation if He was there. So I I wasn't looking for help from God. I was just existing.
0: Well, you know, and when we talk about faith, which is what this whole show is based around, on rivers of faith, it seems that many Christians think that if they turn their life over to the Lord or in any faith, that all of a sudden they're never going to experience any tragedy or pain or depression. And that's not true. We still go through it, but we don't go through it alone. And for strong Christians, when they are going through tragedy oftentimes they feel betrayed by the Lord. That, you know, how could you do this to me when I'm loving you and trying to live my life? And for people who are not strong in their faith at the time of a tragedy, I've often heard them say that they feel they're being punished. Did you feel like you were being punished for decisions you had made?
1: Well, there was a night that um, it occurred a couple of months after Stephen died. It was um, he died December 19, 2003, and this was February 11, 2004, so it was just weeks after he died. I'm still living in this sense of disbelief over what had happened and numbness, not even being able to imagine how I could live, you know, beyond the next day even, and that day I had, I had been at work just again, trying to get through the day, it had been terrible because throughout the day, I was assaulted by memories, you know, not thinking about the wonderful laughter that we shared together, the good times, but more the times where maybe I would grow impatient with his drug addiction. you know, or the times that we argued or that, you know, maybe I should have... I had tried so many different kinds of therapy over those seven years. There were there were a few things I didn't try, but what if there was one that would have fixed him and I didn't? Uh-huh. And so, by the time I left work that day and was driving home, I was weeping the entire way home. And that night, I went upstairs to the room where I had brought his belongings from his apartment and. I remember sitting on the bed that night, and I cried out in anger to a God that I wasn't even sure existed. And I told him, I said, "You know, if you are there, you're a God who doesn't care, because if you cared, you would know how much I loved him, and you would have given me a chance to help him to fix this. But no, you ripped him away from me, and now there's nothing I can do." And So for about an hour, I just sat there crying, holding Stephen's belongings, and feeling anger towards God. Mm -hmm. And I I remember coming to the realization as I sat there that I was not going to make it, that I could, as much as I loved my family... And as much as I knew that we needed each other for all of us to get through this together, the pain was so overwhelming. I, I just realized this is how Stephen must have felt. He, he couldn't take it, and he would have done anything to stop it.
0: And you and considered just, suicide at that moment. Do you talk about I, that even in your own mind, as painful as it was to know that Stephen had done it, you thought about doing the same thing?
1: Right. It hurts so much I would do anything to escape the pain and so I, I accepted that night yes I am going to do this not tonight but when I reach that place and it's probably not going to be long from now I am going to do it and that night before I left the room I knelt beside the bed in desperation and without any hope of an answer but I prayed and I, I said God if you are there because there had been so many signs of his presence since Stephen died that um, I would chalk up as, wow, that's a really astonishing coincidence, and then something else would happen a few days later, so it was just a series of bizarre kind of events where I felt that someone was reaching out to me, and I didn't know who it was. Was it God? Was it Stephen? I didn't know. But I had noticed something was going on, and, and I said, you know, if you are trying to reach me if you're trying to reveal yourself to me then give me something tangible that i can understand that i know is linked to stephen and if you will if you will help me with just an answer to this question that stephen's with you in heaven then then i'll believe in you and so i finished praying and waited and just as i expected nothing happened and so i went downstairs and prepared to get into bed and as I was adjusting the covers I had pulled them loose from the bottom so I went to the bottom of the bed to straighten them and tuck them in and as I did I noticed a single penny laying under the edge of the bed. And I can't I can't explain why, but it was as though everything in the room disappeared except that penny. And my attention was riveted to it and i started thinking about my amazing grandfather who this remarkable christian man who had died three years earlier and Papa had always found pennies in unusual places and he would say mm-hmm. they were gifts from god so i i thought about that and i thought about how close stephen was to my grandfather and i just looked heavenward and i said okay i feel like this is some sort of sign and if, if you will just let that penny be dated the year that Stephen was born, then I promise you, I will believe in you. I will be yours for the rest of my life. And as I knelt to turn over that penny, I, I don't think I was even breathing. I know I was trembling all over. And I reached out, and I turned it over. And that penny was dated 1982, the year that Stephen was born. And I hit my knees, and it was as though in that second all of the love and the power of heaven poured into my broken heart. And I, I couldn't have been happier if Stephen himself had walked in the room in that minute because I felt as though God was saying, I am here for you. Just hang on to me, and I'll carry you through this, and you will see your son again.
0: How beautiful. And the power of a penny to let God speak to us. We are going to stop for a moment. We're going to take a short break, get our composure on this end again. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with Debbie Turner and Rivers of Faith. Welcome back, everyone. This is Donna Tyson with Rivers of Faith on Zeus Radio Network for Hear Women Talk. We're talking today with Debbie Turner about her precious son, Stephen, who took his own life at 21 years old in December of 2003. We are listening to the beautiful music that was written by his brother, Michael, as a tribute to Stephen, and um, I hope that you all are having your heart touched like I am in the sharing of Debbie's story. She just shared about finding a penny that had Stephen's date of birth on it and in that moment feeling that God was indeed telling her that he was with her in her darkness. Um, I spoke of the power of a penny, and on our chat line, somebody said the penny was the palm of Gilead. And the balm of Gilead um, isn't known to a lot of people who don't read the Bible on a regular basis. It's one of those hidden stories. But Deb, talk to me a moment about, you laid out a fleece just like Gideon did when he asked God if he was indeed to be the appointed leader of his people, and the fleece remained dry even though it had rained. Talk mm-hmm. to me about the balm of Gilead and what this penny meant to you. Well, I,
1: I wondered about, um, Have I should, am I wrong to have tested God? And, you know, I wondered if people might think that. Um, but it, it really wasn't that I tossed that out there as a challenge for God to prove himself. It was more, I desperately needed a sign of his presence so that I could have something to hang on to and I believe it was just a heartfelt cry of desperation it was something I needed and God gave it to me and as I walked further in my faith with the Lord there are there are so many times where I've asked him to give me a a sign. Is is that a sign of of weak faith? I, I don't know I just know that God meets the needs of his children and I confess that I, I consider myself quite often to be the, the whiniest of all God's children <laughs> because I'm constantly asking <laughs> him to to reach out to me and to to show me what he wants me to do because I want to please him. And you know what? He always does. And even when I'm feeling helpless and and overwhelmed again by the grief because I want to point out to your listeners that, You know, just the fact that I've surrendered my life to the Lord and the fact that He's completely changed me from the inside out into a new person from the woman that I was on the day Stephen died, that doesn't mean that the pain is gone from my heart or that I don't suffer and my heart doesn't ache every day because of the loss of my son and how he died.
0: Yeah, I don't think you ever get over it. I don't think you ever get over the loss of a loved one, especially when they choose to take their own life. Mm -mm. Um, It makes it so hard. You know, there's a book out that has been very popular in our culture called The Shack, and I think I must have purchased so many copies of it and given it to people but in the shock um, Paul Young talks about the loss of his daughter and then how God spoke to him through the most amazing occurrences and it's not a true story it's a novel but it just it reminds me so much of what you're talking about that God uses the most incredible circumstances to let us know that he is present.
1: So have you read that book? I have, and I love it. I I know there's a lot of controversy surrounding it because of theological differences, but the most important thing about that book is it is a beautiful depiction of the heart of God. When I read that book, there was no doubt in my mind that the author has seen the face of God just as I have because I recognized my Lord in what he wrote. Mm -hmm. I thought, yes, this is the God who rushed to my side when I needed
0: him. And, you know, God spoke to Moses through a burning bush. Why couldn't he talk through people and pennies or whatever signs that that he might send us to do that? Debbie, I want to talk to you for a second about uh, the time um, before Stephen took his life. Is there anything that you would change in retrospect, looking back, that you would change in the way that you dealt with Stephen's drug use and his pain?
1: There is. You know, I mentioned that I had tried so many of the, the normal avenues or what you would expect. There was counseling, um, several different forms of counseling, um, a wilderness program. There was, um, I intervened and changed his school. I took him out of his environment and placed him in a completely new school twice. Same thing happened each time. He just seemed to gravitate towards that those people are are they to him who would lead him down that path. But there was a night when Stephen was, I think he was about 15. He was 15 years old, and we had just discovered on this day that he had stolen a large sum of money from our home. And, you know, you just don't expect that from your child, from your family members, when you give them anything. But to have them steal it from you feels like such a betrayal. Uh And that night, I was... Sitting on his bed. He was laying there uh, pretending to sleep. I don't think he was really asleep. But I had been up there with him for several hours. And that night I remember reaching into the nightstand by his bed and pulling out a Bible and just letting it fall open. And I began to read aloud. And it just happened to fall open to the story of the prodigal son. And as I read those verses over my child laying there, I remember praying that night and saying, God, please fix Stephen. He has so many problems. Please enter into the situation and fix my child. Like the prodigal, bring him back to me. And you know what I should have done differently? Rather than praying for God to fix my child, I should have prayed that he started with me. And that he Uh. transformed this mother's heart who would have done anything to save her child except the one thing I didn't do, which was surrender my pride and my willfulness and my desire to be in control to the only one who could have fixed that situation, and that was the Lord. Because if Stephen had ever met, I'm sorry, if Stephen had ever met the woman I am today, he would have seen the light of Jesus shining through this broken vessel. I truly am a, a jar of clay that's been broken. But he couldn't have helped but have seen the transformation in me and possibly, possibly have thought, wow, what could God do for me? And I, I wasted that opportunity.
0: And that just breaks my heart because sometimes we have to be broken in order for God to rebuild us into the woman that we need to be. You know, I read the story in the Bible of Abraham who willingly was going to sacrifice his son and that is so far beyond my comprehension I know in my own life I have laid my son and my fear of losing him at the foot of the cross again and again but I always pick him back up I always look for a way that I can fix him and how beautiful for you to say begin the healing in you not fixing someone else but in you Stephen
1: would have still had to make his own choices. And, you know, we might have wound up with the same end result. But at least today, I've been sitting here knowing that I did everything that I could and that I had given him to the Lord. But I I do carry the guilt with me of knowing that I knew better, and I didn't. I turned away.
0: Well, let's talk about that for a moment, about the guilt Anyone who has gone through experiencing guilt knows about the night demons and that when you lay in bed, those thoughts of what if I had done this and if only I had changed this go through your head. How did you deal with that guilt, Debbie? What were your tools to be able to let that go? Well, it has been
1: crushing. And what I had to do was simply lay that guilt in my past mistakes and All of them at the foot of the cross, and just ask Jesus to forgive me and ask Him to talk to Stephen about it. I, mean, I don't know what Stephen is aware of, of what's going on now, but I like to believe he has a front row seat at my attention. I
0: think he does. But Deb, we only have a couple minutes left in the show, and I want to make sure that we talk about forgiveness, because yes. this past year, you had an incredible experience of, of forgiveness, and I want you to tell us about that.
1: Sure. Well, not only was it important for me to forgive myself, and it's and accept the forgiveness of the Lord, but I also had to forgive some others who were involved in what happened to Stephen. See, in November of 2003, a month before he died, he suddenly and unexpectedly revealed to me that the reason for the changes in him that occurred back when he was a young teenager was he began to experience bullying at school. Mm -hmm. And at 21 years old, his entire body was shaking, tears were streaming from his face as he was talking about how these young men ridiculed him and made him look foolish to his classmates. And he just carried, you know, the pain of that in his heart rather than thinking there's something wrong with them, you know, for treating someone this way, he thought, there's something wrong with me and turned that reproach inward. So um, subsequently after his death, this was paramount in my mind. I'm thinking, it's these young men are to blame, mm-hmm. and I need to confront them. You know, They need to know what they have done, and that would not have been a wise move at that point. But several years later, I actually sent them copies of my book just with a note that I wanted them to know that, um, Stephen would want them to have that book and to know the beauty that had arisen from the ugliness of everything that happened.
0: Deb, we've got one minute left, so I want to sum this up fast, in that you actually began to pray for these boys by name. And in the moment that you prayed for them, you were released from blaming them and and from that burden. And I wish we had another hour. Unfortunately, we don't. We're going to have to wrap it up. You've been an incredible guest. For those of you listening that would like to um, Contact Debbie to read her books. You can go to her website at www.calltofaith.net Again, www.calltofaith.net She has two beautiful books called Trees Wear Glasses, Don't They? And Whispered Thunder, Living Within the Sound of God's Voice. Debbie, I thank you for sharing your heart and your testimony. Michael, I thank you for sharing your beautiful tribute to Stephen. I pray that God has touched people's hearts encourage them and thank you again so much all of you listeners for tuning in to rivers of faith this is donna tyson with rivers of faith hoping that they will carry you gently through life today god bless